0: Claiming to be the true king of Israel, Jesus was claiming to inaugurate more than spiritual transformation. Epiphany. Jesus was inaugurating more than just spiritual transformation. He was inaugurating the kingdom. A political movement. A political and social movement in which he is at the center of the social imagination of his people. And where his politics and his policies drive the actions of his people. See, we know the politics of Donald Trump. We know the politics of other political leaders of our day. But do we know the politics of Jesus? It's a powerful question for us to ponder today. So directly after revealing himself as the true king, Jesus gets right to business. And you know it's the first manner of business? The first place he goes is to the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish social, religious and political life. See, Israel wasn't like America. This wasn't a democratic nation. Israel was a theocracy. Israel, everything around Israel's life was bound up in the temple, everything. God was Israel's king. So by going to the temple, Jesus wasn't just going to a religious space kind of like we do at church. Jesus was going to a social, political, and religious space, amen? So Jesus doesn't first go to, here's what I want you to see. Jesus doesn't first go to the politicians in Israel after he's named himself king. He doesn't first go to the palace of Caesar after he's named himself king. He doesn't seek justice in the local Jewish nonprofit. after he names himself king. He first goes to the temple. He goes to where the people of God are, and what he finds there offends him. Jesus is so disgusted by what he sees that he decides to do a radical renovation of God's house. Radical renovation. And honestly, I think Jesus wants to do an extreme home makeover, 21st century edition in our churches today. The problem in many churches is that nonprofit has come to really mean nonprofit. Nonprofit. In other words, we've lost our prophetic voice. We've reduced prophecy in our churches to foretelling, when in reality, All of the biblical prophets spent the majority of their time forth telling. They spent the majority of their time bringing forth the words of God to power and constantly challenging society's mistreatment of the vulnerable. And that's what the church should be. The church, in its truest essence, should be a people whose very presence is resistance. Our very presence is resistance. We are not a political people. We're not Democrats or Republicans. We're not first an ethnic people. We're not first Jews or Gentiles. We are first a kingdom people, which means our very presence, our very presence is a resistance. It flies in the face of everything this world has to offer. So how do we get so comfortable? How are we well-adjusted and not maladjusted to our society? How do we blend and fit right in? See, this is what the church should be, but instead, this is how it's happened. We've been taught to think of our faith as personal, but never public. As individual, but never systemic. But today, we're going to talk about Jesus in a way that maybe many of us have never talked about him before. And I'm excited, and I hope you are too. We're going to talk about a Jesus whose resistance to evil and exploitation was more than spiritual. It was physical and social. So here's what I want to highlight. Three things from today's passage, and I'm out your way. I wanna talk about the resistance of Jesus in three ways. And hopefully this should transform our spiritual walk going forward. First, I want us to see the resistance of Jesus is physical. Second, I want us to see the resistance of Jesus is spiritual, spiritual. And third, I want us to see the resistance of Jesus is social. So first, the resistance of Jesus is physical. I love today's passage, Epiphany BK. I love it because I think it's not only a passage that we've spiritualized. We spiritualize this passage away, but it's also a passage that has major implications for how we should view our lives and our bodies in a world that views certain lives and bodies as more valuable than others. Look with me at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers in the seats of those who sold pigeons, It's important that we take seriously the day where Jesus begins his spiritual resistance. Look at where Jesus begins his spiritual resistance. He doesn't set his sight on unbelievers. He doesn't set his sights even on Roman colonial occupation in Israel. You know, Israel was a colonized nation at this point. Israel was a people who were suffering under the the, the imperial power of Rome. Jesus doesn't even set his sight on Rome. Instead, he goes first to the temple. In other words, here's what we need to hear, family. Jesus doesn't begin his critique with the world. He starts with the church. He doesn't first go to the people who must be convinced. He goes first to the people who claim to be converted. This is important because here's what the apostle Peter tells us in the New Testament. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin where? Where does it begin? With God's household. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins with us. See, Peter knows that God never begins his judgment with the ignorant. He begins it with the intimate. God always holds his people the most accountable to follow his standards. So if you consider yourself a Christian today, buckle up. Because Jesus' actions today are especially for you. I love this passage because when Jesus in, entered the temple, the text says he drove out those who sold and bought. He flipped over the table. He kicked over some chairs. Jesus came in like Biggie. I know I'm in best style right now. <laughs> Jesus came in like Biggie. Kicked in the door. Jesus waving the Bible. He, he didn't have the 4-4, but he was waving the Bible. <laughs> kicked in the door. He didn't care. Flipped over the tables. In other words, family, Jesus laid holy hands on some folk. It's a different Jesus, ain't it? See, this passage is hard for some of us to hear, and I already know it, because it flies in the face of the meek and mild, docile Jesus we've been trained to believe. The Jesus for the last 1,700 years of Christian history we've been preaching and living behind and following, or claiming to follow. The Jesus that we've been taught is a Jesus that is not political, he's personal. He's a Jesus that saves souls, but he doesn't save bodies. He's a Jesus that challenges individuals, but he don't challenge systems. But in today's passage, we meet a Jesus that physically resists. Not spiritually. Doesn't talk about it. Doesn't tweet about it. He physically resists the ways in which the powerful were exploiting the powerless. And if you're a Christian today, your ears should perk up. It means, family, that Jesus' death on the cross doesn't mean that he's indifferent to systemic suffering. It means that salvation by grace can't mean that Jesus is apathetic to the social conditions that marginalize the vulnerable. Today we meet a whole Jesus, man. Somebody say whole Jesus, Jesus. a Jesus that turns the other cheek, but that also turns over tables. Do you worship a whole Jesus today or does your Jesus only drive you vertically, but never horizontally? Because if you worship a Jesus that only drives you vertical, but never horizontal, you don't worship a cross, you worship a stick. And a stick is powerless to save. <laughs> Do you have a cross or a stick today? See, Jesus is confronting not just some shiesty systems. Jesus is confronting our own built-in conceptions of him in this passage. He's, he's challenging the ways in which we've shaped Jesus into our image and not the ways in which we've been shaped into his When the text says that Jesus drove out all who sold and bought, that word drove is the Greek word ekbalo. The word literally means to throw out and expel. It's the same word that Paul uses in Acts 1637 when him and Silas were beaten, attacked, and physically thrown into the prison in Philippi. Clearly, this word isn't denoting that Jesus passively resisted the ways in which the poor were being exploited. Can't mean that. Jesus goes straight Rick James on them. Rick James put his feet all on the couch. That's what Jesus did. But family, don't miss the fact that Jesus not only physically throws these money changers, these money-hungry people out the temple, he also finds their tactics to be antithetical to God's kingdom. See, Jesus wasn't just physically angry. Jesus was being driven by a kingdom vision. That's why he did it. What I like about this is that Jesus doesn't speak and then act. Jesus acts and then speaks. This text is Jesus in action. This ain't Jesus in preaching. This ain't Jesus in talking. This ain't Jesus interpreting scripture. This is Jesus in action. The text starts with Jesus in action. And I love that. I love that because Jesus acts first against the the, the oppression that operates under the facade of religious obedience. He acts against it first, and then he speaks. And a lot of times as Christians, when we see things like Charlottesville, we speak, and then we speak some more, and then we speak some more. Oh, I'm sorry, and then we tweet. (laughs) Forgot that. And then we tweet some more, and then we tweet some more, and then we text, and and then we, y'all get the point. But Jesus doesn't first speak to the injustice. He acts. This is powerful for us today because we can easily think that speaking truth is the same as living truth. The two are not the same. This is true of anything in our lives, but especially in the context of justice. You can't speak justice, you do justice. Didn't Pastor Brandon just read that? Yes, our words matter. And for some, just naming the demon is a step in the positive direction. So I don't want to, since naming the demon deeming of, of, deeming of white supremacy and systemic racism is a step in the positive direction. But family, actions always matter more. And I'm going to give y'all something for free today because I like y'all. I like y'all. I'm going to give y'all this for free. I say this to my people in Harlem all the time, but I'm going to give this to y'all for free. Y- 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 y'all want to know what I tell my people in Harlem all the time? Well done is always better than well said. Well done is always better than well said. When we die and stand before our Lord, we ain't gonna hear well said, good and faithful servant. What are you gonna say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done is better than well said. See, we live in a generation that knows how to praise, but do we know how to protest? Well, we, we, I'm sorry, we know how to shout, but do we know how to stand? See, Jesus is challenging us here. Not just those of us with power and privilege in the room, but those of us with hands and feet that don't act. This is where the rubber will meet the road for our generation of Christians. The ultimate question for this generation is, did our witness as Christians create a better world for the least, the last, and the lost, or did it just create a lot of noise? Did our witness as Christians create a better world for the least, the last, and the lost, or did it just create a lot of noise? See, Jesus' radical words are always tied to radical actions. That leads me to my second point. The resistance of Jesus is spiritual. Now, I know some of y'all are probably thinking, okay, pastor, I know Jesus drove out the crooks, and I know he turned over the tables, and I know that he was tight, but what were they doing that was so egregious? I mean, weren't Jews supposed to bring sacrifices to the temple? Isn't that supposed to be a part of their religion? Why was Jesus so angry? Well, let me give y'all some historical context on what's going on here. During the times of Jesus, Israel was a subjugated, colonized nation, which essentially means that Jesus was a colonized subject, but that's another sermon. Not here to preach on that. But it also meant that Israel's colonial status as a Roman commonwealth made everyday Jewish life extremely difficult. This is where the money changes come into play. So Jesus lived during an historical period called Pax Romana. If you remember fourth grade social studies, Right? If you pay attention to four-grade social studies, you remember hearing Pax Romana. Um, and if you don't remember what it means, it literally means Roman peace. Don't worry, you Gucci, if you didn't remember that. I had to Google it myself. All, right? all elementary school was struggle season for me, so I had to Google it. No worries. It's all love here. But Jesus living under this historical period of Pax Romana created problems for the colonized Jewish people that wanted to go to the temple to worship the Lord. Here's why it created problems. Because Jewish law in Exodus 30, 13 says that each Jew must pay a half a shekel every time they go to the temple. A shekel was a Jewish coin. So they had to bring a half a Jewish coin every time they went to the temple to help maintain the priesthood and to help keep the temple operation running, right? See, even back in them days, Worship space wasn't cheap. You had to pay for it, right? So, so the Jews were given a half a shekel every time they went. But because of Pax Romana, the entire empire was forced to use the Roman coin as, the, as its national currency. Kind of like Puerto Rico is forced to use the American dollar as a colonized nation. Okay, we went there. So this is exactly what's happening in Jesus' time. This is a historical period that's shaping Jesus' politics, by the way. So bankers began to say, yo, there's a, there's a hole in the market right here. Let, let me set up some kiosks in the temple grounds. This is literally what they did. They set up kiosks, and, and, and archaeologists have found from the ruins of the temple, of the first century temple, they found kiosks where people, where they used to set up to change money. Like, they they were literally setting up kiosks. That's crazy, that just blows my mind. On the temple grounds, and and, and here's what they did. They sat there all day and they exchanged people's Roman coins for Jewish coins. The problem was that these bankers became greedy, and they began to attach sky-high interest rates to these currency transactions. But that's not all. The text also says that there were people selling pigeons in the temple. What that got to do with anything? Well, this was happening because according to Leviticus, every time a Jew came to the temple to worship, they had to bring a sacrifice. Now the sacrifice that was required was a lamb. And if we have good, and and, and good theology teaches us that that lamb ultimately points to Jesus. Jesus is the unblemished lamb. So they had to bring a lamb with them to sacrifice for their sins and for the sins of their family. Now here's the problem, lamb is expensive. Lamb ain't just expensive today, lamb was expensive then too. Lamb is crazy expensive. So because the poor, the poor couldn't afford a lamb sacrifice every time they went to the temple, the Lord in his kindness allowed a provision in in the book of Leviticus for the poor to bring pigeons to sacrifice in the temple instead of a lamb. Only the poor could bring pigeons instead of a lamb. By the way, just in case you were reading your Bible, this is why in Luke 2.24, Mary and Joseph go to the temple and sacrifice two pigeons and not a lamb when baby Jesus was born. That sacrifice of Jesus's parents highlights the deep poverty that our Lord was born into. But again, that's another sermon. Maybe Pastor B had me come preach that one. Now you can find a pigeon anywhere. Family, you can find a pigeon anywhere. We can walk out here. These New York pigeons is gullies, so I don't even know if these New York pigeons might, I seen a pigeon do a fly by in Harlem the other day. I swear, that's doing, they thugged out in New York, but, but, but they gully in New York. But, first, but, but Jewish pigeons probably wasn't as gully as New York pigeons. So, so the reality is you can find a pigeon anywhere. But somebody got the bright idea to say, let's pick up some pigeons, let's put them in some cages, and let's sit on the temple grounds and sell them to the poor. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell them to the poor, but we're going to attach a sky-high pigeon interest rate to it. So Jesus walks into the temple and finds predatory lending being weaponized against the poor, and doesn't that sound familiar? And then he does something about it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Predatory lending being weaponized against the poor, and Jesus goes and tears the house down when he sees that. See, Jesus, when Jesus sees the economic exploitation happening, he acts. But look at me, he doesn't only act, he speaks. Look at verse 13. He said to them, it is written. Whenever Jesus say it is written, you about to get You about to brace because you about to get a two-piece and a biscuit. <laughs> it is written. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. After Jesus acts, he speaks, but he doesn't just speak to back up his actions. He backs up his actions with scripture. Family, this is what protects the church. This is what protects us from merely riding the the coattails of the newest social justice trend. This is how we are protected. This is how we stay pure and other and holy as the people of God. This is why our protest comes from a deeper place. This is what protects us because the church shouldn't be riding society's coattails. We should be shaping society's consciousness. And this is what Jesus does here. But he does it by backing up his resistance with revelation. Can we back up our resistance with revelation? When he says it is written, look at what he quotes. He quotes Isaiah 56, seven. And Isaiah 56, seven says, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. You ready? For my house, this is God talking, will be a house of prayer for all nations. See, Jesus wasn't merely acting physically, he was also acting theologically. Justice is theological, it's not just physical. Here's a powerful question for us to ponder, does our theology make room for public protest or is there only room for personal piety? This is what Jesus is calling into question by quoting this verse, but he says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers, literally in the Greek, that means a cave of plunderers. It's crazy. That word robber doesn't just mean somebody who, who takes a few dollars from somebody on the road. It literally means one who plunders through violence. Look at what Jesus is saying. Jesus saw predatory lending and oppressive economic policies as violent acts against the poor and vulnerable. These were violent things for Jesus. Do we feel the same way? Do we see gentrification the same way? Gentrification, which is what's happening after decades of disinvestment in communities of color like Harlem and Bed-Stuy, gentrification was the response of the city and corporations to decades of redlining and disinvestment. Decades! So they reinvested back in communities of color, not to dignify, but to displace. Do we see that as violent acts against the poor and vulnerable? Is that an issue that the church should raise its prophetic voice and say something about? Do do we see budget cuts to the poor and vulnerable through through, through harmful political policies and the removal of health care for millions of Americans as violent acts against the poor and the marginal? Oh, I'm sorry, are those just political issues? I get it. Those are issues we just ignore and pray away. That's our role with those issues. Those are political. We, we We have no place there. Since when? Does the church of Jesus Christ, who already has a king, allow a president, not just any president, I don't care if it's Trump, I don't care if it's Obama, I don't care who it is, any president, determine our public witness when we already got a king? Since when do we let a political party determine our public witness? Since when does Christian mean Republican and fighting for the oppressed mean Democrat? Somebody explain this to me, y'all. I'm trying to learn, family. Stop letting our politicized moment control your Christian morality. Advocating for the marginal isn't liberal. It's what it means to be a Christian. It's not liberal about that. It's what it means to be a Christian. It's after all, Jesus who says, What you do for the least of these, you do for who? Me. The left and the right don't have a claim on the least, Jesus does. In calling the temple a den of robbers, Jesus was referring to the place where thieves store their plunder after taking it from others. But Jesus reminds us that that's not what the temple was supposed to be. Family, that's not what the church is supposed to be. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was supposed to be a place where all nations, ethnicities, and classes could come together and love God fully and love one another well. The temple was supposed to be a place of unity, love, dignity, and justice. And when it became a den of thieves, Jesus did more than pray. He protested. That leads me to my third point, and I'm out your way. The resistance of Jesus is social. Epiph, look at what happens after Jesus dignifies the vulnerable. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Isn't it interesting? After Jesus gets out the crooks, the shysty individuals, here come the vulnerable. They come to him. The blind and the lame were two groups that weren't even allowed to approach the altar in the temple. And they're the first two groups that come to Jesus after he cleanses the temple. After Jesus directly opposes those who use their status to oppress the groups that society had thrown away, come to him to be made whole. The groups that nobody wanted are the first ones to come to Jesus in his purified temple. In other words, Jesus clears out the powerful in order to make room for the powerless. And how beautiful is that? If we're going to faithfully follow this Jesus, then our churches must become places where the insignificant become the important. Where the people on the margins get moved to the center. Or as our Lord says in his parable, the last become first. Everything in our world, in our world, this is how we're, our very presence is resistance. Everything in our world clears out the insignificant to make room for the important. Everything, that's literally what gentrification is. It's literally removing those who we've socially deemed less valuable to make room for those who we socially deemed as more valuable. That's all gentrification is. But look at how anti-Jesus that is. Because in Jesus, we meet a God who has incredible power but who chooses to put that power on display through incredible vulnerability. In the gospel, we meet a Jesus that, is, that, that preaches good news to the vulnerable. You know why? Because in the, in the gospel, God becomes the vulnerable. In Jesus, God dies the most vulnerable way possible. He dies as a criminal being executed for a crime that he didn't commit because he lived in a society that deemed different as dangerous. We live in a society where to be different is to be dangerous. That's why they killed Jesus. That's why Charlottesville matters. This is why Jesus cleansed the temple matters. This is why we must say black lives matter, not as a political statement, but as a theological truth. Black lives do matter. It's a theological truth. Because as one poet, Crystal Valentine powerfully put it, Jesus died in the blackest way possible with his hands up and his mother watching. That's why we say black lives matter. Because Jesus died in the blackest way possible. He died with his hands up and his mother watching. That's why the vulnerable matter and the oppressed matter. Family, this is the Jesus that I proclaim today. A Jesus that redeems, that reconciles, and that resists. Are we following that Jesus today? Are we following this Jesus? Do we want to follow this Jesus? Or are we following a theological vision, a theological vision of Jesus that when issues like this happen, it produces a oversimplified response like preach the gospel? As if preaching the gospel solves every social evil. And family, let me say this. Don't nobody love the gospel more than me. Don't nobody love the gospel more than me. But for the record, I agree, preach the gospel, believe it. Live the gospel. Jesus didn't just say preach it, live it. Live the gospel. And while we're on the subject of preaching the gospel, can I talk about that for a minute? Which gospel are we preaching? Christian Europe was preaching the gospel when it colonized the entire Western world. Slave masters were preaching the gospel as they treated black bodies made in image of God as property. Because several churches in the South were preaching the gospel during Jim Crow while also preaching separate but equal from their pulpits. And if there's anything that our racialized history has taught us, it's that separate has never meant equal. What gospel are we preaching? In other words, preach the gospel isn't good enough if your understanding of the gospel is distorted. Family, Jesus reclaims his temple and he reclaims what the gospel means. In Matthew 21, Jesus is just giving us, though, a foreshadowing of the true temple. Jesus says that his body is the true temple that will be broken and rebuilt three days later. And after he dies and resurrects, here's what the Apostle Paul says of this gathered assembly today, the church. You know what he says? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst? In other words, Epiphany BK, Jesus is the Lord of this house, but he wants to do a radical renovation in this temple too. Because after the cross and resurrection, the temple is no longer in Jerusalem. It's in every gathered assembly that calls Jesus Lord. And as a spirit-filled community, we must live in such a way that the impact of our lives, like Jesus, extends far beyond personal breakthroughs. Listen, I love personal breakthroughs. We need personal breakthroughs but personal breakthroughs can't be the focus of our faith. Personal breakthroughs will not get us the world that God has imagined. Personal breakthroughs is not why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for the joy set before him. See, the cross wasn't even the point, that wasn't even the goal. The cross was a means to the goal. Do you know what the goal was? Turn to the book of Revelation. It's a city coming down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. That's what Jesus died for. That's what our faith must drive us to live for. And don't think, family, that this somehow robs Jesus of glory or this is some kind of social gospel. If anything, this enhances the glory of Jesus. Look at how this text ends. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth, mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, Jesus went from Bethany, went to Bethany to Lodge. That's so what Jesus was like, I'm out, yo. Y'all, y'all tripping. <laughs> when a religious elite saw the amazing things, saw the, the text says wonderful things that Jesus did. Not said, did, the children were crying in the temple, and the religious leaders was tight. But notice, all of Jesus' actions were wonderful in this story. The wonderful acts that he did. That means Jesus healing the blind and the lame was was wonderful. But so was Jesus challenging the system of exploitation of the poor and marginal. That was equally as wonderful. His deeds were so holistic and so incredible that the children cry out in the temple, Hosanna, which means save us please. The children said, save us, please. See, family, social resistance leads to spiritual repentance. Don't let anyone fool you. Don't think that there's a demarcation between the two. Don't think that you could, if you only preach the gospel, then, 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 then that's the only way to convert people. Jesus Christ shows us that everything that he did was wonderful, and everything that he did led to the children crying in the temple. Jesus, save us. Save us please. When we raise our Christian voices against social evil and then we mobilize in real ways to resist it in order to empower the vulnerable, we lift up a Jesus who both dies for evildoers and who dies resisting the evil that they've done at the same time. And the response is that even children will see his beauty and will cry out, save us please.